Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Crosspoint. For those of you new, so glad you're here with us. My name is Rob, and I hope to meet you uh, maybe today after the gathering. Uh, Also, welcome to those who are online, joining us in their pajamas or whatever you're wearing. Uh, We welcome you. We're glad you're here with us today. Hey, we're uh, continuing in a teaching series, and we're in the book of Philippians. And uh, one of the things we've been encouraging our Crosspoint family to do is, if you have a Bible, your own Bible, to bring your Bible to the gathering as we walk through this series. Because, uh, I mean, there's just something, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but something unique about reading the Word from your own Bible. And uh, so we're encouraging you to be analog, to, to go old school, to work with some paper as we go through this, because we want to live in the text, but we also want the text to live in us. So uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. We have extra paper Bibles that uh, we're going to, if you want one, just scooch up, your, put up your hand there, and uh, we'll be happy to throw one your way, and uh, we're going to go there. So if you're new at, at church... Uh, and, and maybe the Bible is unfamiliar to you, and you're wondering, well, where do we go to find the book of Philippians? Because that's where we are. Uh, you can actually flip open the front of your Bible, and you'll see a table of contents there. Go to the New Testament, and go down a few books, maybe about eight books, and you'll see the book of Philippians. you see the page, and you'll find your way there, easy as pie. So, uh, hopefully you find your way there this morning. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 1, and verse 18. Um, I don't know about you, how, how many of you own an iPhone? Any of you own an iPhone? I don't know why they started doing this, but um, they, they started sending me this notification, and it comes every single Sunday morning, and it's a notification uh, on my screen use of my phone. Any of you get that notification? Any of you embarrassed about the, how much time you're actually w- looking at your device? Um, like, I looked at, like, one of my worst weeks, and I, I'm, I'm confessing here before you, okay, like, 16 hours, oh, almost 17 hours on entertainment that week. Mind you, I, I, I watched movies while I do dishes. So, okay, you'll give me that. Um, I don't do dishes. Uh, Seven hours social networking, three hours, seven minutes productivity. What does that say about me? Okay. What does that say? Total uh, screen time for that one week, 35 hours, three minutes. More than a day and a half looking at this creepy little device. Okay. Um, yeah, you say, wow, you look at your screen time, you see what you discover, all right? <laughs> Unless you've got a flip phone um, or an abacus. You know, I don't know about you, but lately I found it, it's, it's increasingly difficult to be focused in the culture that we're in. Um, it just seems like there are just more and more things for me to do. There are more and more things that are coming my way. Uh, and maybe more and more things that I just kind of get to do. Lately, I've, I've been reading this great book. It's called uh, Essentialism, and it's by Greg McCown. And uh, it's, not a, it's not a Christian book, but that doesn't matter. It's a good book, and it's, it's true what it's saying. And uh, I found it fascinating as I found my way through this book. There is a, uh, essentialism is a growing movement in a culture that has gone mad with an undisciplined pursuit of more. At its core, essentialism isn't so much about how to get things done, but it's about getting the right things done. It's about making the wisest investment of your time and your energy in order to make your greatest contribution in the world. That's essentialism. So the essentialist chooses to live by design rather than by default. Some people, they just kind of coast through life like a ship that's 
afloat on the waters without an anchor, without a rudder. But the essentialist says instead of being constantly reactive, they choose to be proactive. And because of this, they will choose to focus on a few vital things rather than on many trivial things. They encourage and they eliminate the non-essentials from their lives. But here's the thing. If you're going to get rid of the non-essentials from your life, you actually have to figure out. You have to decide what is most essential in your life. And this requires discipline. Um, and, and it requires really having a clear understanding of your highest purpose in life. So, pop quiz. You don't have to answer this out loud. Don't answer this out loud. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being an essentialist and 1 being a non-essentialist, where do you find yourself on that scale? Are you an essentialist or a non-essentialist? To think about essentialism, it kind of flies in the face of our culture's values, doesn't it? I mean, our, our lives are stuffed with non-essential pursuits. It's like a 50-year-old, overweight, middle-aged man trying to put on skinny jeans. That's our lives. And, and much of this is due to, to an, kind of an exponential increase in choices that's happened in the past few decades. I mean, we have more options now than at any other time in human history. Options about what to purchase, where to go, what to do with our time. We live in a world of options here in the Western world. So because of that, there's also a ton of social pressure to have more or to do more because of our online interconnectedness. Some people are experience FOMO all the time, the fear of missing out. And this FOMO drives them to almost to paralysis because they don't know what to do. There's just so many options that are out there. I mean, did you see the latest series on Netflix or Crave or Prime or Disney Plus, right? Have you been online lately? Did you see that on Instagram? Did you see that on Facebook? I mean, did you read that article? Did you listen to that podcast? Did you watch that YouTube video? Maddie has a dog. We should get a dog. Everybody who's somebody has a dog, right? I saw Tony, he went to that new restaurant last week. We should go. It's an amazing restaurant. So we have this stuff coming at us all the time, bombarding us, bombarding us, bombarding us. And, and so because of that, we try and cram even more activities into our already overscheduled lives. You know what's fascinating is that the word priority was first brought into the English language in the 1400s. And when priority was brought into the English language, it was singular. There was no such thing as priorities. The priority meant the first thing because it meant it was that one thing that was prior to all other things. So logically, there can only be one priority. There can only be one thing that is prior to all other things. That's where the word came from. But somewhere in the 1900s, we made the word priority plural. So we no longer talk about priority. We talk about priorities. And so we illogically reason that by changing the words, we can somehow bend reality and logic. That somehow we can have multiple first things. And it's no wonder that people in that organization just find themselves being pulled in so many different directions. Now, uh, being an essentialist begins with this. It begins with having a clarity about your purpose. It means asking the question, this question, what am I here for? And from there, becomes this disciplined approach to prioritizing what's most important and eliminating what's non-essential in your lives. I don't know about you, but I find it's very easy to get distracted in this world of a million options. That the undisciplined pursuit of more is costing me more and more every day. Because the truth is, here's the thing, is I'm finite. And you're finite. I do not have unlimited time. I do not have unlimited resources or energy or capital. And in a hurricane of options, 
we can lose sight of what's most important. We can live life a hundred years and still miss life by a mile. Well, today, we're going to dive back into a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And you know, when we read Paul the Apostle, we discover that, that he was a person that was guided by unparalleled clarity of purpose. Paul had a singular pursuit that governed his life. It radically reoriented his priorities. It also transformed his perspective on absolutely everything. And when we look at Paul, we see a spiritual life that was fundamentally shaped by essentialism. So I want to invite you this morning into the text. We're going to start at, first, uh, at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18, in the second part of verse 18. So let me, let me read, and you can just follow along. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, we see the first glimpse of this singular pursuit in, in verse 20. Paul said that he wants Christ to be honored in his body. Here's his one pursuit in life, making much of Jesus. His pursuit is Christ and Christ's glory. He wants people to see how good and how great and how amazing Christ is. He wants to know Christ and he wants to make him known. Now, when, it's interesting. When Paul says he wants Christ to be honored in his body, what's he talking about there? Well, he's actually talking about physically standing before Caesar and his court, and standing trial. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I think it's important for those of you just joining us to, to, to look into a little bit of the backstory of what's happening uh, here in this letter. Um, so, like I said, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Philippi. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing while he's un, under house arrest in Rome. So he's chained to the floor inside this house. He cannot leave the house. Outside the door of the house, there are guards on four-hour shifts, just kind of watching over him, making sure he's doing nothing wrong. He can't leave the house, but he can have visitors come to him. Um, he's in charge of his own sustenance. In other words, he has to pay for his own food. There's no, there's no food services. There are no free Bic razors while you're under house arrest in Rome. You either survive or you don't. So he has visitors who are coming and they're bringing him things. Uh, but for the most part, he's kind of on his own. A world away from the people he cares the most about. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And this began with some trumped-up charges that happened in Jerusalem. And, and in order to, be in, to avoid being falsely accused and in a kangaroo court among his own people, Paul decided that he was going to appeal to Caesar. Which means that he's a Roman citizen, and if he makes his appeal to Caesar, that means he doesn't have to stand trial in this court. He can go all the way to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he can stand before Caesar's tribunal. Now, Paul likely wouldn't stand in trial before Caesar himself. Caesar typically has other things to do. But he would stand in Caesar's court on trial. The, trouble, the problem is, is that trouble has been stirring since Paul arrived in Rome. There's a, there's a growing dislike and suspicion for Christians in the empire. And to top it all off, I mean, the, the, the Roman emperor in this day is none other than Nero. Nero is insecure, he's insane, and he's getting increasingly paranoid. Nero had this tendency, right? He had this tendency to eliminate all opposition. I mean, he killed his wife because he wanted to marry somebody else. He's killed his mother. He killed members of the high court in that day and age because he was typically paranoid and he wanted just to uh, be in control. He was a bit of a control freak. 
But now Nero has heard about this new religious movement that's happening out there in the empire. And the people of this movement are following this resurrected son of God. The king of kings and lord of lords is what they're calling him. And they hear, he hears it, then Rome hears that he, he's, this king is going to come and he's going to bring about a new world. And he's, he's going to fix everything. And before this king, all the nations and every other king, every knee will bow. The Christian movement is a threat to the empire, even though it doesn't intend to be. It's not a political movement. It's just a movement of belief and of people surrendering their lives to Jesus. But the Christian movement is a threat to the empire nonetheless. And here's the thing. When you move against the empire, the empire strikes back. <laughs> and in just a few years, the great fire of Rome would burn. And Nero would blame the Christians. And the first empire persecution against Christians would be launched by Nero himself. So this tension, this pressure is there now with Paul as he's writing in prison. And that's important when we try to understand the depth of what Paul is saying here. But now Paul is, of all things, rejoicing. Because he believes, he says, that this will turn out for his deliverance. Now, at first glance, when we read that, we, might, we think that Paul's assuming that he's going to be set free when he's talking about his deliverance. But that's actually not what he's talking about. He's talking about a different type of deliverance here. When we read the text, we discover that Paul wanted to be delivered from fear. Paul wanted to be able to stand before Caesar's court with courage, to testify fearlessly about Jesus and the resurrection, to share the good news of the kingdom. And he didn't want to be ashamed of anything he said or anything he did. So it didn't matter if he lived or died. That wasn't the big deal here. What mattered to Paul was that Christ would be honored in his body. Paul wanted to make much of Jesus. This, in fact, was Paul's singular pursuit. That's what he wanted to do. And it's interesting is that Paul says that he actually eagerly expects this to happen. He thinks it's possible. I mean, let's look at that in verse 19. He says it's possible through your prayers and the help of the Spirit. See, Paul understood that the kingdom of God advances on its knees. It's when the people of God stop trusting in their own strength and they start relying on God's strength and power. And, start, uh, it, and it's not by might, and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And Paul understood that the prayers of the church ultimately would catalyze the power of the spirit, and the spirit would become Paul's entire sense of courage. You know, Paul was likely aware about what Jesus said to his disciples more than 30 years prior to this. He would have heard about this. Jesus said that to his disciples, one day they would stand before rulers and synagogues and leaders, and they would have to give an account and defend the gospel. But when they did that, they would not be alone. Let's pick up the text. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples, Luke chapter 12, verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues, this is Jesus sharing with his disciples, and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So even though Paul was locked in chains, he was standing on the promise of Jesus. The Holy Spirit would give him the words to say. He would have sufficient courage for what he needed to do in that moment. Friends, the truth is, is that when we call out to God, our prayers ignite the Spirit's power, and that ultimately leads to courage. I mean, you might remember the story from the early church. It's in Acts chapter 3 and, and 4 about Peter and John. They healed a crippled beggar. Maybe you remember that story? And after they healed the 
crippled beggar, everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? So they said, well, let's tell you what's going on. Let me tell you about Jesus. So they start telling about Jesus. Well, the religious authorities hear about this, and they're like, well, they don't want anything to do with that. So they come in, and they shut things down. And then they arrest Peter and John, they put them in jail. The next morning, they come out of jail, and they have to stand before the religious leaders, the most powerful people in all of Jerusalem. They stand before them. And he says, okay, let's unpack this. What is it you're doing? And after they hear it all, and and they notice the courage of these guys, they say to them, okay, we're going to let you go. But we want to say this, don't speak about Jesus. And they threaten them. If you talk about Jesus, there'll be consequences. Of course, Peter and John say, well, (laughs) what else can we do? Of course, we're going to talk about Jesus. And then Peter and John went back to the church. And they gathered together with the church. And when the church heard about this, and they heard about the threat that was there, they called out to God. And they said, Father, sovereign God, would you stretch out your hand and would you perform miracles and would you give us courage? And here's the response to that prayer, the people of God calling out to God. Here's what it says. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with what? With boldness. I imagine, what would that have been like, right? To have the rafters of the building shaken during the prayer meeting. The power of God. Here's the thing, is that prayer catalyzes the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit among us. And the result of that is boldness. It's boldness. This is why I think Crosspoint is so important. That we become a people of prayer. People who call out to God. Who trust in the Spirit's power at work among us, in us, and through us, filled with the Holy Spirit. Because here's the thing, Paul believed this, and he expected, he eagerly expected that the Holy Spirit would come, and he would be able to make much of Jesus, which was his singular pursuit. Well, let's keep looking at the text. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Here's what Paul says. He says this, very famous verse. For to me, to live is Christ, And to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I cannot tell. I mean, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is much far better. But to remain in the flesh is, is more necessary on your account. Well, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me... You may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul, Paul is basically summarizing his, his singular pursuit in one clear statement. Here it is. To live is Christ. He's saying his life came from Christ. He's saying that his life was wrapped up in Christ. He lived his life for Christ. Christ was the priority. Christ was, was the singular pursuit of Paul. And because Christ was Paul's singular pursuit, what it did is it, it radically reoriented all of his priorities and his pursuits. It also transformed his perspective on absolutely everything, including life and death. See, Paul was facing a, a dilemma that was essentially beyond his control. And the dilemma was this. Would he live or would he die? And many, uh, many of us have faced the dilemmas before. What is the dilemma? Oh, well, a dilemma is a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two or more alternatives. And typically, all of these alternatives are pretty undesirable. That's a dilemma. Um, how many of you ever played the game Would You Rather before? 
You ever played that game before? There's these little books that used to be published called Would You Rather, filled with these Would You Rather kinds of questions. Would You Rather presents two alternatives, two questions. And, and, and typically there are dilemmas that you don't want to face, and you have to choose between the two. It's a great game you can play among your friends. Matter of fact, I think we should play it this morning. Let me, let me give you some examples. Here's one. Let's put it up. Would you rather lose the ability to read or the ability to speak? Hmm. Tough one. That's a dilemma. Here's another one. Would you rather be married to a 10 with a bad personality or married to a 4 with a great personality? <laughs> Do not look at your husband or your wife. <laughs> How about this one? Would you rather lose the ability to lie or believe everything you're told? Another one. I like this one. Would you rather, for the rest of your life, have every shirt you wear be itchy or only be able to use one-ply toilet paper? <laughs> I spent many years as a youth pastor. I like that one. Here's the last one. Would you rather be covered in feathers or covered in scales? As a matter of fact, why don't we take a moment, why don't we interrupt this sermon for you to just have a conversation with the person beside you? Why don't you answer that question? Would you rather be covered in feathers or covered in scales? And you need to argue your case. I'm going to give you one minute. Okay, ready? Go. Covered in feathers doesn't mean you can fly. You're an ostrich. <laughs> you just have feathers. Covered in scales doesn't mean you can slither or swim. All right, how many of you say feathers? Okay, how many of you said scales? Oh, wow, okay, a lot more scales people in this, uh, in the 11 than the 9. Okay, awesome, well done. Uh, the correct answer is... <laughs> I think it was Martin Luther says that uh, of the lesser of two evils, choose neither. <laughs> now, Paul is facing a dilemma that is beyond his control. He could live or he could die. But the outcome isn't up to him. He says it's up to God. So Paul asks himself a hypothetical question. He says, if he had the choice between living and dying... What would he choose? And Paul is just very clear. This is a really difficult decision to make. He didn't know which way to go. He was between a rock and a hard place. So what does Paul do? He starts weighing his options out in front of everybody else inside the letter. So first of all, what if he lived? Well, Paul says, if I live, then I'll be able to pursue my singular pursuit. He could make much of Jesus. He says, I could continue advancing the gospel. Uh, what Paul would call fruitful labor. Yes, it would be hard work, but it would be worthwhile work. And Paul could probably get out, go and visit the Philippians, and he could help them to grow in their faith. And by doing all of this, Paul would continue his singular pursuit. Notice verse 26. He says that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So by helping the Philippians, it would bring glory to Jesus. He'd be making much of Jesus. He'd be lifting Jesus up. He'd be magnifying him. So staying seemed like a pretty good option. As a matter of fact, Paul might even say it's the right option. He even says, to remain in the flesh, to stay here among you, is more necessary on your account. And so because of this, Paul actually said, you know, I, I probably won't die. I will be released, and I'll come to you, and I'll spend time with you, because it's the right option. Now, what should blow our minds 
is the reason Paul didn't give for staying alive. Paul didn't say he wanted to stay alive for himself. Did you catch that? His reasons for staying were completely selfless. He wanted to stay for the sake of others and ultimately for the sake of the gospel. It wasn't about him. So he wasn't gripping to life with his last dying breath. He wasn't hoping to suck the marrow out of the bones of life. He wasn't regretting all the things that he wouldn't be able to do if he died, all the stuff he'd be missing out on. His re reasons were actually completely selfless, completely other-centered. That's crazy when you think about it. And, and, and this was ultimately because Paul had one singular pursuit that governed his life. Now, what about the other option? Well, what if Paul died? Well, what might seem startling is that Paul believed that dying was actually the better option. He didn't see dying as loss. He said die, to die is gain. As a matter of fact, he says it was better by far. So what's up with that, Paul? I mean, do you have like some morbid fascination with death? I mean, how, how is it that you can actually say that to die is gain? You know, I think most people, given the options, would choose life. It's like that old bluegrass song. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Most of us want to avoid death for as long as we possibly can. Uh, it reminds me of that story about three friends who were discussing death. And one guy turns to his buddies and says, hey, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? And the first one says, well, I, I would hope people would say that he was a good humanitarian. He really made an impact in his community. And the second guy says, well, I, I would hope they would say I was a really great father. He really, really cared for his kids. So they turn to the third guy and says, well, what would you say? He says, well, I hope they would say, oh, look, he's moving. You know, when you're young, you really think about death. I can remember in my 20s, seeing death as just this far-off future event, and I was untouched. Uh, it was untouchable. You know, I was untouchable. But, but, but the longer I live, the more I've come to understand that life is fleeting. You know, I can see the warning signs on the dashboard of my life. Every sinus infection, every pulled hamstring, every moment of sheer exhaustion. These remind me that life is fragile. It's momentary. It's fleeting. Every funeral I attend, every tragedy I hear on the news reminds me of my own mortality. Listen, we've all got a shelf life, and one day the milk was sour. None of us is impervious. None of us is bulletproof. Even ding-dongs have an expiration date. See, the truth is, is we cannot cheat death. The Bible says that, that life is like a passing breath. Or it says it's like the morning mist that lingers for a while but dissolves in the rising sun. Death kills 100% of people 100% of the time. And the odds are never in our favor. And I want you to think about this this morning. Do you prefer talking about death or would you rather change the subject? You know, Philip of Macedon, he was, he was the, uh, the father of Alexander the Great. He commissioned a servant to stand in his presence every single day. And that servant had one task. He was simply to say to Philip, Philip, today you will die. That was a person who wanted to be reminded of their mortality. Can you imagine that? In contrast, Louis XIV from France made it law that the word death could never be spoken in his presence. I wonder if more of us are probably like Louis rather than Philip. We'd rather deny death than face it. You know, recently I, I saw the movie 
A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And I talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. The movie's about Mr. Rogers, and, and it gives you a brief glimpse into the kind of person he was. Uh, but there's just one scene in the movie, near the end of the movie, where uh, a friend invites Mr. Rogers to his father's house. And his father is, is on his deathbed, literally. And the, the deathbed is in the living room, and the father is dying. And the family's all gathered there around the bed, and they're, they're talking and whatnot. And at one point in the conversation, the, the subject of death comes up. And then there's this awkward silence. Everybody's looking at their shoes. But, but Mr. Rogers decides he's going to be the courageous one. And he speaks up. And he says it in his kind of his calm, reassuring voice. And I, and I love this because this is an actual quote from Mr. Rogers that they inserted into the movie. And here's what he says. He says, you know, most people find it difficult to talk about death. But to die is human. And anything that's human is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable is manageable. The Apostle Paul was comfortable talking about death. Even though death was staring him right in the face, he wasn't afraid of it. And it's because Paul believed that death wasn't the end of the story. Paul believed that, that Jesus, in fact, had, had defeated death. That Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for our death. That Jesus rose again from the dead, demonstrating his victory over sin and death and the grave. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in his, in his great chapter, speaking about the resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that Christ had defeated death and that those who put their complete trust in him will receive new life, abundant life, eternal life. And that when we put our faith in Christ and in his finished work, we can face death with courage. We can know that the debt has been paid. We know that our, our sins have been forgiven. We know that Jesus welcomes us into his presence now and forevermore. We are Christ's and he is ours. And this is what Paul believed. And because he believed it, he could face death with courage. He knew that if he died, he would be with Christ. That in some unexplainable, supernatural way, he would be in Christ's immediate presence. And, and in this new reality, there would be no constraints. There would be no distractions. There would be no chains. He would come face to face with Jesus in pure, unrestricted access. And for Paul, this was his singular pursuit. And this is why Paul said of death, it is better by far. And this is why Paul could say, death is gain. Here's the thing. Paul's posture towards life and death only makes sense in light of his singular pursuit. If Christ is your life, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if Christ is not your life, if Christ is not your priority, if Christ is not your singular pursuit, then Paul's posture towards life and death seems rather odd, doesn't it? So what happened to Paul? Do you know, after Paul's letter to the Philippians, the animosity towards Christians just continued to grow and to brew. Which didn't, of course, help Paul's case at all. 
After Nero began persecuting Christians, the likeliness of Paul's death actually increased and it continued to increase. And tr church tradition says that Paul was actually transferred from house arrest to a place called the Mamertine Dungeon in this basement of this building, cold and dark. And that the reality of his execution increased day by day as Nero grew more paranoid and Nero grew more unstable. From the Mamertine Dungeon, Paul wrote what many believe was his last letter to his apprentice, Timothy. He didn't write it to a church. He wrote it to a, wrote it to a young man who was under his mentorship for many years. And here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. You can almost see this as Paul's epitaph. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, I think the most poignant point in all of that is that Paul's prayer for courage had been answered. Do you remember what his expectation was back in verse 20 in Philippians? His expectation is that I would not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul had kept his singular pursuit. He had made much of Jesus. He had fought the fight. He had finished the race. He had kept the faith. Much of church tradition states that Paul was beheaded at the command of Nero. And this took place on the Ostian Road outside of Rome. This would have happened in AD 67, about three years after Nero had burned Rome, and within a year of Nero's death. Now, there's another tradition that says Paul was released from Rome and made it as far as Spain to speak about Jesus, but this tradition comes from fewer sources and from much later sources. So I kind of lean towards the first story. And in this tradition, even in the second tradition, Paul later returned to Rome and was still executed by Nero. At the end of the day, Paul was executed by Nero. But Paul's death is not a demonstration of defeat. Here's the thing. God is glorified when people accept, escape death. But God is also glorified when people die well. And ultimately, we know that death has been defeated through the cross. And as Paul wrote here to Timothy, the story wasn't over. The best was, in fact, yet to come. Christ would return. He would be the righteous judge. He would fix all things. He would make all new. He would bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And then he says this, he would reward his servants who long for his appearing. Do you long for his appearing this morning? Is Christ your singular pursuit? In the face of death, do you have courage? Can you have courage through Christ? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Paul and I read this particular section, I remember reading this section for the first time when I was a baby Christian over 30 years ago. And it just convicted me and it humbled me. I'm forced to ask myself, is Christ Jesus my singular pursuit? What am I living for? And ultimately, what am I willing to die for? And I realize these questions are very large and they're very grandiose in a world full of stinky diapers and buying houses and commuting and Netflix episodes, that these are just high and lofty questions. But here's the thing is they should radically reorient my practices. 
because they ultimately determine how I choose to live my life. They will transform my perspective as a follower of Jesus. And so Crosspoint, just this morning as, as we end, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the message today in prayer, in whatever shape and whatever form that takes with you. Our practice during the month of February, and maybe beyond that, we'll see, but at least during February, is we want to do some reflective prayer at the end of our gathering. Instead of singing a final song, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to just focus on Christ. And I want to give you a couple of questions to consider. What would it look like to have Christ as your one singular pursuit? And second, how could you radically reorient your life around this pursuit towards what's essential? So I want to give us a chance to turn our attention towards the living God. You know, he's here. He's not silent. He's very near. He cares about you a great deal. He's for you, not against you. And he longs for you to be entered into his presence even now while we have this moment together in space and time. So I want to give you a couple of minutes to pray. And then afterwards, I'm going to commission us to go. You might be here this morning. and You have a very specific prayer need. And our prayer team would love to be able to come alongside you and pray with you. I'm going to be joining them afterwards after I commission us all to go. But I encourage you to come if you have a need. Whatever your need is, there's no stigma in prayer. We all wear the hat of needing prayer time and again. And we'd love to come alongside of you and pray with you and for you, whatever your need is. And so you can even come now while we're doing reflective prayer. But again, let's take a couple of minutes to reflect. What would it look like to have Christ as your one singular pursuit? And how could you radically reorient your life around this pursuit? Let's be the people of God. Let's pray to God. Jesus, we pray that you would be our vision. And you would be our singular pursuit. That you would be the hope and the goal of our lives. And we long for your coming. We say, come Lord Jesus, come. And fix everything. And we pray, Jesus, that you give us sufficient courage that you would be glorified in our lives that you give us boldness that we would live in this life unashamed as true representatives where we work where we live in our families in all things lord we need you and we long for your holy spirit to move among us and in us would you stretch out your hand and would you fill us with your holy spirit that we might be the people of god on mission in the world. That we might lead victorious lives against sin. That we might um, stand up to oppression and brokenness. And God, we might be your hands and your feet. We declare together, it's not by might, it's not by power. It's by your spirit, Lord. Your spirit alone. Fill us afresh, we pray, as the people of God. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and you'll do it. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website 
thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.